welcome to Hit the Six. I hope you had a, a lovely Christmas. Michael, how was your Christmas? Oh, it was good, you know. Uh, the rule changes didn't affect us too much. We had a nice Christmas here. Lots of food, lots of cheese, lots of crackers. Lovely chocolate baileys. I've been saving for the occasion. How about you? Yeah, excellent. Had a, had a very good day. It was a bit different. Not quite what you're hoping for. Boxing day, that's the big day for the Stylemans. That was not what it would be. We could go on this long walk and I still did the walk, but not in a group of 20 people for obvious reasons. And so that was, that was a shame, but it was, it was nice. It was a nice time and some good Christmas telly as well always makes it better. Uh, but despite tier four restrictions and, and COVID and whatever, the hit for six train keeps chugging along. Who have we got this week, Michael? Well, we've already got um, someone who I've known for quite a long time. I was actually at his wedding about 16 years ago. It's a very grumpy 10-year-old kicking of football. Um, outside a big wedding tent, I was saying the best time, but I'm sure he was. Um, and he is the, currently the producer for the BBC World Service cricket podcast, Stumped. And also, I think where you know him best from, and a bit of a hero in our eyes for, for this, he was the BBC cricket live text man, along with Stephen Shemolt, for many years. So, you know, pretty cool job. Um, and his name is Sam Sheringham. And I'm really looking forward to chatting to him. Good afternoon, Sam, or, or good evening almost. How are you? I'm good. Hello, Rob. Hello, Michael. Yeah, good. Very much excited about um, coming on the show. Uh, what a pleasure. What a privilege. Well, it, you say it's a privilege for yourself. It's a privilege for me because I, I was saying to Michael earlier that I think it's a toss-up between you and J.K. Rowling as to who I've read more of over my life. Such <laughs> is the amount of time I spent on BBC live feed. And maybe Stefan Shemlet as well in there, because those two names, Sam Sheringham <laughs> and Stefan Shemlet, years of late schools, university, reading through updates for all, all sorts of sport, uh, but, but mainly cricket. So no, thank you very much uh, for, for coming on. It's great to have you. Oh, I love it. What a pleasure. <laughs> You can write a million different features and articles and little angles and, and, and news stories and interviews, but it's always the live text that people have read, but, um, which is fantastic because cricket lovers, uh, what a service it is. And, and it was, yeah, it's great fun doing it. Well, on, on terms of live text, because you've often you kind of moved on to, to other projects as well, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But um, the live text was something quite, it's a relatively new phenomenon in the world of, following sport, following cricket. And it's something you were involved in from fairly early on, really. Um, what, what was it like, really, being almost a guinea pig and offering that kind of service with, with the BBC and be one of those first people to, to do that kind of broadcasting of sport? Yeah, I reckon, I mean, you're right. I was relatively early, but I would have to, I'd have to hand over to um, The Guardian, uh, I think, started it. They started over by over. Um, and did a very good job. And then the BBC service, a couple of uh, good friends of mine, actually, Tom Fordyce and, and Ben Durs, who might have been doing it a little bit before you were reading it, but they they really pioneered the style of it, I would say. And, and the style being to just be as if you're chatting to your mates. You know, well, I guess what you guys aim for in your kind of podcast chats is that, you know, to make it sound like you're speaking to somebody you know very well who... who who loves cricket and and to, and to speak in that way, you know, without offending people, of course, and, and without forgetting that you need to tell them what's happening in the cricket. But uh, so I guess I, I, you know, I came into the BBC in 2007, and I reckon this had been going a year or two, 
and um, and really enjoy doing something quite different because when you're writing a, a, the, yeah, the kind of thing I referred to earlier, a feature article or an interview or a news story, you know, you've got to write in a certain way that that, that tells people facts, gives context, you know, carries on the style of the um, of the organisation you're writing for. I used to write for an organisation called Bloomberg who who banned adjectives from any writing. Uh, we can talk about that more later if you like, but you know, to suddenly be let loose on this on this service that encouraged personality and character and engagement with the audience was great, great fun. And um, yeah, long old long old shifts, long old days, long old nights often in the office when England were touring overseas in Australia or India, and you'd be kind of burning the midnight oil in London, and then more recently up in Manchester. Um, I can tell you, you know, you know, getting cabs into work at 3 a.m. in the freezing cold to then switch on and um and and tell people about England and Sri Lanka or something. But what was what was always uh, so uplifting was was the number of people reading it. You know, within minutes you'd have hundreds of emails and texts to sift through and and uh, engage with people. So it, it didn't take long to wake up and and, and start enjoying those uh, those shifts. Do you think it played it's played such an important role because it is the most accessible way I think to to follow sport because um you know if you don't have Sky Sports you have BT whatever and you don't even have strong enough internet or you're at a family event where it's not suitable to hold a little radio up to your ear what you can do is sneakily get your mm-hmm. phone out of your pocket and it, even if your internet's rubbish it will slowly load and you can find out that oh no we're thirty for free again but. Exactly. It is honestly, uh, it's it's a, and I, I don't know how many holidays and intimate moments and nice <laughs> times I've ruined by checking the live text and groaning or whatever. But um, I've always been, I've been completely naive, Sam. I thought I've not really known whether you guys do it from the studio, like do it from the office in Manchester, for example. Whether you get to go on the tours and you're watching it live, or whether you're watching it on TV. So is that is it the former that you're watching it from a TV in the office? Yeah, I mean, there's a well, there's a couple of things to tell you to tell you that. I mean, fir- firstly, on your point of just doing it wherever you are, I mean, that's really interesting because I think what when it when it started out, I mean, you know, smartphones, as you know, are, are, are developing all the time, and it's only really recently that everybody's got 4G. Everybody, you know, so the original template was really a service for people sitting at their desks in the office. And then it would be a case of of your boss not seeing and, you know, making sure it was on a a separate window to your your emails or whatever you're working on at the time. But but yeah, I I think it's evolved massively. And I think it it was always done from the office. But what what, what I was a pioneer of was actually doing it from the ground. And um, myself and, and Tom Fordyce, I think it must have been the 2011 India series started doing it from the ground and so the guys in the office might be sifting through texts or emails but we what what that allowed and, and adam outford your, your previous guest remembers very well that allowed very close interaction with the tms team so you could get one of them in you know phil tough and all and michael warm might come and sit with us and we'd we'd chat to them while we're commentating on the cricket and you know really really get them involved in things so so that, so that was brilliant fun and then for for various reasons mainly technological because you know if, if the internet was going to go down it's far more likely to go down at a cricket ground than it is in a in a bbc office the core service carried went back to being done from the office but we carried on going to the ground and kind of adding the color and the flavor 
So my role for, for three or four years, I would say, up until I moved on to the, to the radio show I'm doing now, was to provide Carla and inserts into those live texts, which often meant running around the concourse of cricket grounds, taking photos of people dressed as, as nuns, flint, you know, characters from the Flintstones, uh, Hawaiian shirts, you, you name it, you know the kind of fancy dress getter interviewing people who'd had far too much to drink and just but just providing little little bits of color from the ground that uh that would then go into the live text commentary and give you things that you wouldn't see on the tv or wouldn't you know wouldn't hear on the radio just just from out and about little little bits and bobs from around the ground so they were they were quite enjoyable to do as well so kind of playing the roving reporter role. I think I actually do remember yeah. me seeing photos because you'd put photos sometimes, right, from the concourse or whatever. And Very much so. Yeah. Of you in, in amongst the herd of rhinos. Um, well, so <laughs> look what I'd, Sam's up to. <laughs> I'd try and keep myself out of, out of it if possible, but I would often take pictures of, of of these of these people in amongst. Yeah, exactly, dressed in whatever getup, and you know, and also and also just behind the scenes test match test match special things. You know what of Within reason, of course, but you know what have uh, what's Jeffrey Boycott been up to? What's Phil Tufnell talking about? Um, you know what what's the what's the mood in the press box? Is there a, a little funny observation? You know th things that things that just add to that service that's going on. But you know, telling you what's happening on the field and telling you what what people are saying. But um, so I think that that's and that's something that's very much continued. Ste Stefan Shemilt, who um, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, Rob, he, he he very much does that role now. So, so the person at the ground is is contributing to the live text, but in a way of giving you those things that you can't see and that, that the people covering it in the office can't see either. So it's it, I think I think it's an important part of the service, but it's evolved over the years. In terms of audience engagement, participation, how many texts and tweets are coming in at one time? Because it, it feels like a, a lot, you know, you ask a very random question and suddenly you pop it up with brilliant answers, left, right and centre, and surely mm. not every answer is going to be brilliant. So there must be a decent number of people messaging in. And, oh, and, yeah. how, and how, how are you kind of selecting which ones make it and which ones don't? Well, a lot of, a lot of it hits the cutting room floor and, you know, you, you, you have to be brutally honest because when you get a really good theme going, I'm racking my brains now for some of that, but, you know, you've read it enough to know what, what's a good one. Um, you know, often they're related to the action. You know, I remember um, I, I used to quite enjoy asking people for their kind of tabloidy red top headline that would sum up the action. And you, you'd put out a question like that. Honestly, you'd get, it's difficult to put a figure on it, but you'd get, you'd get 100 in five minutes easily. And, and you're right, yeah. It, there's no, if you're, if you're the person providing the commentary over by over, especially if it was a 2020 or a 50 over match, you need somebody else to be um, to be doing that. So that became a that became a shift, a role in itself. It's called the media monitor. It doesn't doesn't sound particularly glamorous, but it, it's incredibly important to have somebody, especially as you know forms of social media are, in, are increasing by the year. So yeah, you'll have somebody across Twitter, Instagram, no doubt now, texts and emails. You know, when I started, it was always just just the emails, the TMS inbox. But now, yeah, four or five different mediums with people sending things in, people sending pictures in, of course, now, and somebody sifting out the best stuff. But, uh, but having said all that, you know, if you're the commentator, you do want to be, have an eye on that, and you kind of want to be selecting some of the best ones yourself. So the person, the media monitor, would maybe 
cut it down to the best five or six and then you'll select the ones that might fit with the conversation so um yeah it's 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 a fun thing to do but it it, it is quite exhausting especially with with just the popularity of cricket and the number of people feeding in well i'll take that as a success then because i i went through a period of time where i was tweeting texting relentlessly and i I must have got on the live feed whether it be (laughs) rugby cricket about 20 times no you've done well which I, which I take is giving me something maybe 105 minutes. I think I'm hitting a better, a better success rate than that. So, um, Bob, I was about to say, you strike me as the annoying type of person who would have got on quite a few times. I remember <laughs> yeah, I tried I, to get on a few times, and I think the only time I managed it was in, at the end of a very long, one of those really long English summers of cricket where they packed too many games in. And I think it was like the final ODI against South Africa in September. I don't think anyone else was tweeting in, but I think I just tweeted in a bit of a rant about why doesn't Jade Dernbach bowl a stock ball? And I did manage to get on the page and I was buzzing. But Rob, you struck me as the type of person who would. Yeah, and I'm also the type of person sad enough to have screenshotted every single time I got on the BBC Sport website. <laughs> Back from, from the age of about... The framed collage at home. Yeah, loads of different ones of me. There used to be like an Ask Jerry Guscott feature on BBC Sport Rugby. And there's about 20 times where Rob from London had asked some banal question about mm-hmm. something to do with, with club rugby. Um. um Sam, which so final question for me on this, just which did you prefer doing? Did you prefer doing the commentary, the roving reporter role? I've always thought the commentary sounds quite stressful as well. So you've got to keep up with the action. You know people are frantically refreshing it to find out what's happening. I um well, I must admit, latterly I, I enjoyed the roving reporter role because it meant that you had you got to be at the ground. I guess that was the that was the difference. I mean, when we were doing the commentary from the ground. It, it, it felt glamorous at first, but you, you, you weren't, in a way, you're not, you hardly even watch the cricket because you're typing so much, you're, you're keeping an eye on those emails and, you know, it, it's enjoyable. It, I found it really enjoyable when you did get a good thread going and you really felt like people were having fun, but, but it was relentless. And, you see, yeah, so I quite enjoyed, I guess, you know, I had the match report to write. I was doing, uh, you know, columns for, for some of the BBC pundits, but getting out and about and feeding things in was was, was really good fun but it, yeah it, I guess it, it all comes together in the you know as as the as the reader you're, you're hopefully getting a flavor of everything no absolutely and just to so going backwards a bit can you tell us about how well first of all when did you really like fall in love with cricket we always ask our guests this and it's always interesting to hear yeah I mean it would have been you know pretty early childhood seven or eight years old maybe ten um and I was lucky enough to live in Canterbury, very, very close to the St. Lawrence ground. And um, they had a, a policy then, which no doubt has changed now, but you used to be able to get in free after four o'clock. So, and this was on my way home. So it was very common for me and a couple of mates to, um, if there was a, if Kent were playing someone half decent, and especially if they were playing the touring side, to just pop in, you know, maybe get an ice cream and just watch a bit of cricket. And, um, yeah, I think that's where my love started. I mean, I remember very well watching the West Indies side and what was brilliant about it, you know, cricket was on terrestrial TV, so you'd have seen them playing England and then there'd be a couple of weeks between each test match and they'd go and play a couple of counties. So you'd go from watching, I remember the attack that summer was um, Malcolm Marshall, Curtly Ambrose, Courtney Walsh and Patrick Patterson. And these, you know, and it was just a world away from the, the, the county trundlers, medium paces who were playing for, for England, or you see, especially playing for Kent at that time. 
And to suddenly pop, you know, on the way home from school, walk in and see Courtney Welsh fielding on the boundary, the same guy, Kirtley Ambrose, steaming into bowl at the Kemp people that he'd seen on the telly, tormenting England uh, a week earlier. It was, it was just fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I loved it. I loved football as well, but I, but I really fell in love with cricket. And it was great to be able to have it on my doorstep because football was a long way away. You know, Kent is a bit of a backwater when it comes to football, but to have elite cricket, the West Indies, on your doorstep like that. I remember that very, very well. What you're saying about seeing Courtney Walsh in, in the flesh, and there is something mesmerising about seeing that elite athlete up close who you don't normally see. So I grew up in Wimbledon, and we'd always have this thing where the, the school term would end in the during the middle of the second week, and so you'd head down to, to Wimbledon, get a ground pass for an afternoon, and often on the outside courts, you know, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, whoever, Serena Williams, basically practicing on one of the outside courts and seeing them just even casually training. So often Federer is having a knockabout. Just amazing. Yeah. And that is, it is, there is something quite incredible because they're just so much better than the mug down the park that you see playing tennis. It's, it's wonderful. No, oh, totally. And that, yeah, Wimbledon's brilliant for that, isn't it? Because you can just walk around those outside courts and especially in week one, there'll, there'll be top players playing or practicing or training. But, um, but yeah, and, and being, you know, the, the, the seats where you would walk into the St. Lawrence ground in, in Canterbury were always side onto the bowler. And, you know, now as a privileged journalist, we're always uh, behind the bowlers. So you get one off of view, but that side on view, the speed, you know, just not being able to conceive of seeing the ball as it's flying past the batsman just that sense of speed just seeing the length of their run-ups was um was fantastic and yourself as a cricketer were you much of a <laughs> much of a player yourself or, or or not really no not well no not really i <laughs> our school our school team were very good and i just don't think i ever started young enough to really uh to, to break in I used to used to play a lot with mates in the garden. We'd play we'd play out full test matches. Me and a close friend, we'd write out all the scores. Um, you know, he'd kind of camp over my house for a weekend, and we'd we'd write. I remember an, an England India series, and I was India, and I remember Navjot Sidhu, who both of you probably won't won't necessarily have heard of, but he was an Indian Oprah probably in the very early nineties. And that summer, he he was hitting a lot of sixes. So I remember. Um, carving one over the over the roof of the house and uh, went acting out city but uh yeah played a lot of cricket in the garden um and yeah i remember uh um your dad actually michael being quite formative in my love of cricket i remember we had he was a very close friend of, of my mum and dad's as was another man called uh bob cattell who's written lots of books about cricket and my dad had never played much but he loved cricket and um it was one weekend i think we were staying at uh at your parents' place, and 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 David had a match against Bob's team. So these two family friends were playing against each other, and so we had this wonderful outing where we went to watch uh, David against Bob. And as David was always more of a batsman, and Bob was much of a, more of a bowler. I can't remember what happened in the match, but I just remember the thrill of uh, again of uh, picking up David's bat and it being you know almost not being able to hold it, but just this excitement of like a real adult cricket match and, and, you know, messing around on the sidelines. So, uh, yeah, it's another childhood memory. It must have been somewhere in South London. And so for you then, this love cricket, hence those kind of stories, I mean, it sounds like 
my childhood, like anyone's middle class, South East England childhood who loves their, their cricket, even if not playing it to a particularly high standard themselves. Uh, but obviously you've become a, a journalist. Was that something from quite early on you thought, that's what I want to do? Or, or was that something you came to later? That that was really quite early on. Um, I I really enjoyed, I loved sport, uh, you know, football, football and cricket, tennis, you mentioned, but probably football and cricket more than any others. And I really enjoyed writing. So, um, yeah, it didn't take, you know, get, early years of secondary school, realising that this was an opportunity, that sports journalism might be an opportunity to combine two things that I really enjoyed and actually get to go and pay, get paid to go to these sports events. So, um so, yeah, I think I, I guess I kind of harnessed that by starting to write uh, the odd article for the for the student paper at school and doing the odd match report. And then I carried that on into uni. So I went to, to cover the, um, the uni football team matches. Didn't do a massive amount of cricket then, I guess, because cricket was in the exam terms. So it was always a bit a bit trickier to kind of get out and about. But I remember doing some football reporting and also editing our college sports uh, magazine. So, yeah, it was, I can't remember ever thinking, I mean, I remember remember very briefly thinking I might want to be a lawyer because the OJ Simpson trial was on TV and it all looked very glamorous. Um, And obviously, you know, another quite respected profession, but really seriously, I, I can only really think that I wanted to be a sports journalist. And then, you know, from from undergraduate uni, I then went and did a, a year's postgrad newspaper journalism course at, at City University in London, and then got my first job as a trainee news uh, reporter for the Press Association. Um, so I didn't start in sport, but within a couple of years, I moved to my first job in sport, which was uh, which was at Bloomberg. Can you tell us a little bit about Bloomberg and its ban ban and adjectives? Yeah, no, yeah, happy, yeah, happy to carry on. So after a couple of years um, at PA, that was really good. Actually, it was good. You know, I hadn't, I, I'd always wanted to do sport and and ground. I hadn't thought I'd need a grounding in news, but I think it was re- actually really, really helpful um, to cover a few court court cases and um, you know get out and about on the beat, kind of learning how to report generally. But uh, yeah, Bloomberg was a funny one. Um, it's a big. American, for anyone who doesn't know, you know, big American financial news organization. Um, but they also, their, their main thing is that they do this kind of financial data service as well. So anyone who works in banking or finance will have a Bloomberg terminal on their desk. So I guess somebody decided that these same type of people would probably be quite keen on sports. So um, I guess sport, sport for Bloomberg was a bit of an afterthought. But they took it seriously in the sense that when it came to a big event, they would they'd be very keen to be there. So I'd spend a lot of time kind of drearily writing these uh, articles without adjectives. Um, but then I'd get sent to big events. So I went to the what did I do? 2006 Football World Cup, 2005 Ashes, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, 2007 Rugby World Cup, and 2007 Cricket World Cup. So there's incredible. 18-month period where I covered World Cups in three different sports um, and then left quite soon afterwards. <laughs> so um, it was brilliant for travel and experience and opportunity, but the, the writing style really did bring me down after a while. The fact that they wanted it to be all about the, 
the finances of sport rather than the um, the actual joy and, and love and sport and, and the characters and the people on the field. It was always about following the money and, and writing about sponsorship deals and things like that. So, but yeah, it, it was it was great for 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 getting to getting myself to some to some really big events. Which of those World Cups was your was your favourite of the, the football, cricket, and rugby? Of those World Cups, uh, definitely the football one in Germany. Uh, it was really, you know, uh, it, it was brilliant to be there anyway. I covered it right through to the final, and it was a really well organised World Cup, and there were some great games. The cricket World Cup, the two thousand seven one, was. I don't, you guys probably remember. I mean, it was it was a bit yeah. farcical, to be honest with you. In a way, by the time I arrived, the, be- the, the most interesting stories had already happened. The, the horrendous tragic death of Bob Woolmer and India and Pakistan both being knocked out in the group stage, So, they, which was something that they then changed immediately because, of course, Indian TV, you don't want India going out after, after three games, that's happened. But then it, went, then it became a, a succession of very, very one-sided games. England were, England were terrible. As they as they were at one day cricket until very recently, as you know, um, the yeah they were just very very both semi finals were well completely one sided affairs, and then you had the final in Barbados where it was brewing into quite an interesting game. Uh, Gilchrist scored a brilliant hundred, one of the best hundreds I've ever seen live for Australia. They I mean from memory they made they made three hundred, which back then was a massive score. And Sri Lanka, who you gave very little hope, suddenly started getting a real motor on and looked like they were in the game. And it was it was bubbling up to a really good final. Then there was a very brief rain delay. And then Sri Lanka came back on, lost a couple of wickets. And then farcically, it ended in um, in terrible light. And, you know, the, the, there were no floodlights. The bad lights started. Um, and then suddenly Australia would just proclaim the winners. It was just a kind of, it was a, a farcical ending to a really farcical World Cup, to be honest with you, um, which I'm sure you both remember. But um, yeah, Cricket World Cups are a lot better these days. Yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten quite how, I mean, I mean, granted, I was only 11, but I did follow that World Cup pretty avidly. And I had forgotten what a shambles it was. Because obviously the things that overshadowed it were, as you mentioned, Bob Woolmer's death. Uh, flint off on the pedalo. And the pedalo, yeah. I knew yeah. it was one I'd forgotten. So that was another story that had already happened before I got there, yeah. And the wonderful Dwayne Leverock diving one-handed catch <laughs> and get Sewag out over one. Those kind of the three big things. And then once, because once India were out, England weren't up to much. It was like Australia were always going to win it, really. Um, and so it just kind of petered out. So I'd forgotten what happened in that final. I mean, that that is shambolic, isn't it? What a way to end the World Cup. It, it, it really was, and it was. Um, and I remember, I remember the very next day going along to an ICC uh, press conference where uh, Malcolm Speed, who was the um, the chief executive or chairman of the ICC at that time, was coming to kind of answer all these questions about this farcical ending, and you know, how how could they explain not having a not having a rest day or not starting earlier, um, a reserve day, sorry, I mean. And just as he was speaking and addressing reporters to try and explain this away, the, the ICC branding banner that was behind him just collapsed and fell down. And it was kind of this very apt metaphor for, for the shape of the tournament and what had just unfolded. Oh, brilliant. I do feel like just hearing that, and yeah, I tried to, I think I was following it, but don't have a huge, super clear memory of it only being 12, but it does make me think the World Cup that happened 
last year, I mean, it may be a format that's also better for Indian TV, but it also feels like a better format. You get to see a bit more cricket. All the teams play each other, which is nice. Mm. It makes me appreciate the format even more, actually. Well, you're right. And that was the format that they had used in 87, was it? Um, and they, they, you know, they, they then abandoned it and tried lots and lots of different things. But I agree with you. I quite like that round-robin format. I think it worked well. And, and I, I was worried that it very, very early that you'd have four teams running away with it and you'd have this meeting at all, did you? There was lots of interest right up yeah. until the end of that 10-team group. I mean, I think ideally there'd be more teams in it, but... I, 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 yeah, I suppose that, that is the one thing, isn't it? You want the World Cup to be somewhere where you like the, the Netherlands and, you know, kind of your Oman, who are, who are decent non-test playing cricket nations, that they get a they get a chance to play them at the top top level rather than it only being basically a, the, the test nations. A bit of a close shot. I think it's really, really difficult, isn't it? Because I think the argument that the ICC have got, that I, I instinctively feel the same as you, but I think that now that T20 is, is so big and only getting bigger, the T20 World Cup is the one yeah. where you want, yeah, 16 teams, maybe even become 20 or more. Um, and have them all in for the start. What I don't like about the T20 World Cup is that they they still have that kind of pre-qualifying tournament. So you're kind of at the main event, but you're not really because only a couple of you are going to actually get through and play the big boys. So that's the one where they they are encouraging more teams, but they still haven't quite got it right. I don't think in terms of um, in terms of getting more and more you know exposure for these smaller teams. Because the trouble with the 50 over World Cup is that. You know, you can you, you do get these ridiculously lopsided games and teams getting found out, whereas the T20 is perfect for development and you are going to get some upsets. Yeah, and the other annoying I mean, you thing can, about yeah, that 2020 World Cup format is that with the fantasy team, for the first week, you've just got to shove a load of Oman and Scotland players in your, in your team because they're the only teams playing. And, and you never know if any of them are any good or not. Um, and so that, that, I mean, was infuriating at the last 2020 World Cup. That was what cost me a real kind of high finish was I went for all the wrong wrong blokes from the UAE squad and that kind of thing because, you know, I thought he might score runs, but actually it was it was another fella. It was really wound me up. <laughs> Got to do your research. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about lopsided contests, you can also see that. You could see that a little bit last summer. Like, Afghanistan, they kept choosing to bat first and it was infuriating me. Like, they choose to bat first against Australia. And I was just thinking your best chance here is bowling them out for a low total and chasing it. If you bat first, yeah. struggling. And most of their games in that World Cup, they felt a little bit lopsided. Even though Afghanistan are a really exciting nation and they're rapidly improving, you still saw that issue a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, Sam, you um, I know 2005 was quite a big year for you. You, you obviously you attended 2005 Ashes. You got married. You went on a honeymoon. Are there any particular highlights from that year that stood out? And Liverpool won the Champions League. Don't forget that one. <laughs> Um, that 2005 Ashes were, was unbelievable. That was actually the first series I covered because I joined Bloomberg in 2004 and they had a, a kind of seasoned cricket writer, but I guess his frustrations at the, at the aforementioned adjective ban and, and, and things were, um, were coming out. And he left. He left in the, in the spring of 2005. So I, I put my hand up and inherited the, the, the cricket reporter role. And uh, my first series was the 2005 Ashes. So I think the first match I ever covered 
was actually a T, the first ever international T20, which was between England and Australia at the start of that summer. And it was down in Southampton at the Rose Bowl, as it was widely known then, before it had a sponsor. And um, I remember it well because Australia just treated it as a bit of a joke. They had the nicknames on their back. Um, they, you know, they, they, they just clearly thought, what is, what is this new format? Whereas England picked their strongest side. And they absolutely hammered. I think they think England won from memory by 100 runs, which is obviously a ridiculous margin in a T20. And it was the start. It, it, you just suddenly felt that like there was a bit of momentum. You know, Harmison was bowling like the wind. Simon Jones was brilliant. Um, Triscothic smacked a few. Smacked McGrath possibly for a few. And that carried on into the one-day series. England, um, Peterson got involved. And actually, that was a brilliant, it was a brilliant kind of precursor to the ashes that England were just starting to lay these psychological blows on Australia in these limited over games. And that then continued, of course, the first test um, after day one, when England carried, carried on brilliantly with Harmison taking five wickets. They then lost the first test at Lords. And you thought, oh, well, normal service is resumed. But um, then you had that incredible test at Edgbaston. And two more in remarkable tests at uh, at Trent Bridge and Old Trafford. So I um I was at three of them. I was at Lords, Trent Bridge, and Old Trafford. But I, but as you mentioned, I did get married that year, and we'd scheduled our honeymoon a good year in advance. I was actually away for the Oval, so I had to hand over to another reporter for that for that moment of history. So I mentioned I remember um, lying by a pool in. Uh, where were we in Brazil getting getting text updates? I didn't have I didn't have the over by over service, but getting text updates from from a couple of good friends. And uh, and there's a picture of me celebrating England's Ashes win whilst on honeymoon. What a year. Um I actually think the momentum you talk of building in that T20 game, that was definitely intentional, wasn't it? That approach England took under and I think Vaughan was really really in, like, instructing them to have this no-nonsense approach right from the start. We're not going to get bullied. I can't remember whose autobiography I was reading, but it was something about how, I think in that T20 game, an Australia batsman got hit in the, I think in the face or something, and he was bleeding. And basically no England players went to say, you were right. They all just left him alone. <laughs> and um, one of the, and the other Australian batsmen, you guys in a war or something, like didn't really understand why they were treating it like this. But that was the tone they wanted to set from the beginning. And yeah, you could see it. Yeah, there was a, there was an altercation between um, Simon Jones and Matthew Hayden in one of the in one of the ODIs, and you just thought Hayden's trying to bully him here, but actually Jones was um, standing his ground, and you just suddenly, you know, these 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 England players who for years we'd seen, you know, almost will, willfully getting uh, intimidated by the Aussies were, were standing their ground, and um, yeah, and you know that really was that was the summer that. Um, that, that changed English cricket, I think, in many, many ways. And, um, you know, made, made the Ashes a far more, ever since, it's been a, it's been a far more even contest. You know, if, if Australia had won 10 in a row, was it? Something like that before then. You know, England hadn't won it for 18 years. Um, and now it kind of changes hands. And, you know, it's still, we, we've had some wonderful close contests, haven't we? And it's, and it's great to see. Just hope that England can make it a bit more, a bit more interesting down under next year. That's the problem, isn't it? It's been those, that obviously wonderful one time, 2010-11, where we yeah. won down under. But either side of that, I mean, it's been, what, 14-1 over those 2006-07, mm. 
thirteen fourteen and, and the most recent one. Which yeah, was... two five nils and a four nil. Yeah, that that that's where um, and England always go in. They always make the right noises, don't they? But that twenty ten eleven was was very special from an England point of view. It was, but um, yeah, you'd hope because the contests over here have been pretty close, and you would, with the absent, with the exception of maybe twenty fifteen, was it or twenty third, the three nil. But um, yeah, you'd like to see another close one over there. You really would. Um, and well, fingers crossed. England's test team, yeah, it always I feel like we're building something, but there's definitely a little bit of work to go before. Where's where's this coming? This time next year, won't it be in a twelve months time? Hopefully, yeah. we'll be performing at a, at a level that will allow us to, to compete and compete well. Uh, but anyway, Sam, move, moving on to more present times for you. Mm. Uh, you now produce Stumps podcast on, on BBC. Uh, tell us a bit about that and tell us how that came about as almost a slightly different arm of BBC cricket coverage from the TMS stuff. Yeah, so um, Stumped is... A, yeah, a regular BBC World Service programme and podcast, um, a weekly thing. And it was, uh, I, I, I think it came, because I was, I was the first full-time producer, but it had been a pilot series. And I think it came about because World Service were very keen to increase their reach in India. And what do Indians love? Cricket. We all know that. So... A, a, a cricket show was mooted, but but they were also keen to, to have a cricket show that wasn't just a, a pure cricket for cricket lovers and cricket nerds. It, it, it would have to provide something that would interest people who, who had never seen the game, you know, to um, to have angles and human interest stories and 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 you know look at look at the crossover between cricket and culture, cricket and society, cricket and the movies um cricket literature um which, which i think cricket is you know tailor made for cricket is, is a metaphor for life in many ways isn't it the kind of the success and failure the, the type of characters that are involved the narratives the storylines that we talked about we used to pick up on in the live text so so there was a pilot series that, that then got commissioned into a weekly show and i then moved from the website to become the the full-time producer and um what we've kind of turned it into is i guess a slight a, a balancing act of of offering something that the cricket purists will love so so interviews with big name cricketers um discussions of uh, of, of the latest you know big matches around the world but also yeah quirky interesting features reviews uh, of interesting books about cricket um for instance this week we've got a story from hong kong of a of a team of um Filipino domestic housemaids who have formed a cricket team and they're absolutely tearing up the local leagues over there. They're all they're Filipino women who come from families who are who, who played a lot of softball and baseball as kids and they've just adopted cricket as something as they do. They're one day off in the week on a Sunday and they've they've won the development league in Hong Kong the last two years. So really interesting, fascinating stories that cricket seems to throw up. And I, I've been doing this for five years now and we're never short of stories there are always there are always stories somewhere in the world of, of, of some unlikely team playing cricket or or you know a part of society that the cricket has invaded so 
I'd say the show is, 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 a, is a mix of those kind of dual aims of having something for the cricket purist and something for somebody who just loves a good story and, and cricket just seems to throw up so many of those. 100%. On that Filipino cricket, mm. cricket team, how, how did you come across that? How, how did you hear about it? Well, we came across, I think it was uh, an agency. So Agence France Press, a, a French news agency happened to... Um, to pick up on the story and put a put a nice little video on their social media feed, and we just followed up from them. So we found them on we found their Facebook page and got in touch with their captain and and we're doing the interview tomorrow. So I hope that I hope the story lives up to a billing. But from everything I've seen and read, it it sounds absolutely fantastic. So, but you know we've been doing this this show for such a long time, and our our presenters who who, who I come on to talk about are so well well versed and so grounded in in cricket and and have so many contacts around the world that that you know we 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 do find stories and we do we do have have ways of opening doors and so many people know know that I produce this show so people within the BBC will send me little things that they've seen or or um, people outside freelancers will pitch things in it's been a bit trickier of course in in the time of Covid with people not traveling around the world to cover things but you know we have freelancers stringers in different countries who will pitch ideas to us so yeah, we're always on the lookout for for quirky. I think we have a we have a line that Alison Mitchell reads on the at the start of every show that it's an intercontinental mix of of stories and news and features from the from the quirky world of cricket because I think cricket is a quirky world. And um, yeah, Alison Mitchell is our host and, and our her, her co-host is Jim Maxwell, the the brilliant Australian broadcaster, and Cheru Sharma who covered presented cricket on Indian TV for many years. So. It's an absolute household name over there. And I must admit, it wasn't a particularly familiar name for me when I started producing the show, but having been out and about with him in, in England and Australia and India, uh, when we've been doing stump shows on the road, he gets mobbed. He gets absolutely mobbed by, by Indian cricket fans because he was the face of Indian cricket for many years. So I feel like a real hanger on when I'm with him. Having presenters from all over the world, Sam, so London, India, Australia... I mean, does that present challenges like both, I don't know, logistical, getting them all to broadcast in and that sort of thing, but also editorial with different perspectives from different countries? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the three of them, the three of them come on every week. So our, our default show is me, me going into a studio in Salford and, and you know, with a, with a technical studio manager to get the, get the various lines up to the three of them. And it used to be that they'd all be in studios, but at the moment they're all at home and, you know, working from home like most of us. Um, but their, their differing perspectives, uh, I guess can present a challenge, but more often than not, they, they are the selling point of the show. You know, they're, they're, they're the reason I think that Stumped is a bit different to, to most cricket shows because they do give you those perspectives from England, India, and Australia. Um, so we want them to represent, I guess, the cultures. I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned is that Stumped has partner stations. So Jim represents the ABC, Cheru represents All India Radio. So that so the show goes out on on those two radio stations as well, and they're providing the perspective um, from their country and their broadcaster. I mean, of course, as with anything, I have to make sure that the final product um, represents BBC values that nobody's being libelled or, or you know they're not saying anything that we wouldn't be comfortable going out on on the BBC, but but providing perspectives from different countries 
is something that that, that is crucial to the show. And I, I, every week it, they surprise me with something else. So, you know, it's, it, it's fascinating to, to have those, those people on the ground who are so well-versed in, in cricket. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. England, Australia, India, of course, are the, are the three real powerhouses of world cricket now. So in many sense, for a, a show like yours, of course, it makes sense to have those voices represented. Uh, do you worry that the dominance, because a lot of the financial um, clout in cricket is with those three nations as well, do you worry that they're becoming a bit too dominant at the expense of maybe a Sri Lanka or West Indies cricket or, or South Africa, New Zealand, that kind of thing? Yeah, from a, from a personal point of view, I do. You know, I think... Um... I think, you know, there, there was that ICC big three um, carve up of, uh, a few years ago and it did, it did feel very much like suddenly all the, all the international tournaments were, were doled out between those three nations and um, the series between them seemed to get bigger or, you know, more, a couple more tests added every time England go to India. So, yeah, but I, I, I'm hearing encouraging noises from the ICC. That There the, the, the does seem to be a, a move to kind of reduce that influence. I think India are the, are the dominant force. They do seem to bring more money into the game than anyone else. So they, they do seem to have a bigger, bigger say at the table. But I think the globalisation of cricket is, is happening. You know, like I say, we, are co- we, 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 we do our best to cover stories from cricket in so many different pockets of the world. The Afghanistan story is a, is a wonderful one that keeps on giving and how brilliant that they got test status. I mean, we did a, we did a stump special. I went over to, to India for Afghanistan's first test against India. And even though they were blown away in, in two days, it was just a wonderful, wonderful moment. And just seeing the, the players in tears when the national anthem was playing, you know, it's, it, it was a thrill. And we, we then went to... Um, Ireland for their, their first test match against Pakistan and did another special from there. So the fact that the, the club is getting bigger is a good thing. I mean, I think there's, you know, there are, there are lots of issues that we haven't got time to go into here, but, um, you know, you want, those, you want those countries to be given competitive matches. You don't want the big three to just play each other and, and not play against those smaller nations. I don't think Australia have played Bangladesh at home for 15 years, and Jim always l- laments that fact. And they just cancelled a, a test match against Afghanistan that was supposed to happen this year. So, so that's something we all need. We all need to keep an eye on. I mean, you know, they would argue that they played in the shorter forms, but that doesn't e- even that doesn't happen much outside World Cups. So, you know, we want that T20 World Cup that we talked about to be that development. Uh, potential for the game um, cricket at the Olympics would be a, would be a fantastic thing wouldn't it if that could if that could start it's a good sign that we're going to have women's cricket at the Commonwealth Games in in 2022 so steps like that are brilliant you know for the for the growth of the game it's exciting the uh, the cricket at the Olympics because suddenly China automatically become interested mm. um, and they only and America of course and the fact yeah. that the the Olympics are going to be in LA in a few years. You know, there's a lot of talk about the USA embracing cricket there. So who knows? Well, yeah, exactly. Very exciting. And with someone like China, it is so big that you only need about 10% of the country to get get into it. And you've got, well, 100 million people who, who love the game of cricket, which is, yeah, super exciting. So I'd love to see cricket in the Olympics. It'd be brilliant. Getting USA into the cricket, I mean, it wouldn't be straightforward. Me and dad took um, my brother George's father-in-law to a game at Lords a couple of summers ago. And I tried my best to explain cricket for the first half hour. We got there about an hour before play. 
and I've never realised, and me and Rob have spoken about this, and we thought this could make quite a funny feature on the podcast, Sam, actually trying to explain cricket to someone who's never watched it before, because just how many different meanings are there for the word wicket to start with? Like, the amount of things in cricket that are so hard to explain, <laughs> and trying to explain it to my brother's father-in-law, and then my dad had to take over because he was much better at it than me, but God, it's a complicated, silly game, isn't it? A nuanced game. Um, you were speaking about the increase in globalisation of cricket, Sam, but I did want to ask, you started covering cricket 2005 and that was just as T20 cricket was starting to get off the ground. But like you said, Australia kind of treated it like a joke that first game in 2005. Um, but you've watched cricket change massively over the last 15 years where you've been working in it. And I just wanted to ask your thoughts on that. You know, you've seen the rise of T20 cricket, test cricket becoming a bit less frequent, that the rise of franchises and the IPL, big bash, everything, even 10 over cricket, like, don't forget the hundred. And the hundred. Um, yeah, it's so many formats. Um, it feels a bit messy, doesn't it? I mean, in in some ways, it's difficult because I, I, I mean, I'm a Test cricket purist. There's nothing I love more than watch, watching a Test match for hours, <laughs> um, and I won't get bored. But I understand that in a in a in a lot of country, if you're trying to convert someone to the game. It is far easier to show them the, the crash bang wallop of a T20 than it is a test match. And, and as you say, for the globalization of the game, for somebody starting out, a game that only lasts three hours is a much easier sell than a game that lasts four or five days. So just to see the skills on show in, in the most recent IPL and in the, 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 the short T20 series that we just saw between England and South Africa before the, the tour sadly had to be called off. You know, I, 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 I'm sold on it now. I, I, I find T, T20 incredibly exciting at its best. I mean, probably that, despite England having that incredible win, probably probably the form of the game I'm, I'm least keen on at the moment is the 50-over game. And sometimes I feel that, you know, it, it, England, England took it to thrilling new levels last year, but a lot of 50-over matches you do you do find being pretty one-sided. Um, and, you, you know, and one team gets 300, the other one loses a couple of early wickets and you kind of limp, limp along for another three hours to, to an inevitable conclusion. So I think T20 is a brilliant way in. I think the problem with, with having these three and even more formats that you mentioned is just, just the calendar and just trying to provide a bit of meaning to it um, because you've got these franchise league, because you've got these World Cup in World Cups in two different formats. And I just think that there's got to be more kind of conversations happening between the the owners of these franchise leagues and the ICC about how you provide some kind of meaningful calendar so that the best players can play in the in the, in the key matches for their country, but also be available for the for the IPL and and, and you know the big bash and. I think that's that's the problem now because you can you're just going to get a lot of watered down international series where you know England B are playing because the most of the best England players are playing in the in, in the IPL or, or perhaps perhaps less so England but certainly India and other nations and I think it's just that that, that balancing act of trying to find a meaningful calendar that that, that keeps the game alive because the, at the moment there's just too much cricket. I I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more, Sam. Uh, you mentioned at the start in response to Michael's question, I almost um, could, could sense the glint in your eye when you said the 100. Obviously, uh, the BBC will be broadcasting much of the 100, so I'm sure you have a, a professional position on it. But are you, are you excited for, for this new tournament? Do you think it's going to be a success? 
You know what I am. Uh, um, and I'm mostly excited just because of the, the standard of player that will be involved in it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the change of format, I kind of feel like that, that that's now, we should, we should park that as an argument, you know. Were, were they right to, to change from 2020? Who knows? But the fact is, it is, it is a short-form cricket tournament involving, hopefully, most of the best players in the world that's going to be held here in England. So I think it will be, I think it'll be great. Um, I mean, let's hope there are fans there. I think, you know, fans are crucial to, um, to any sport, but especially to 2020 and especially to what the 100 is trying to achieve, which is taking England, England, you know, taking cricket out of its kind of middle-class white stronghold. So, um, so yeah, yeah, let's hope, let's, let's hope it's big and let's hope it's really exciting. I wish the England players were involved a little bit more. But yeah, I, I, I think it, it's it's similar enough to the to the T Twenty format and length of, length of time to be to provide some very exciting close finishes, and yeah, it's got lots of these brilliantly skillful players um, who are doing incredible things. So I think yeah, I think it'd be great. And my big hope for is off the back of a a drought of live sport. Perhaps the coronavirus, as an awful thing as it has been, may be a wonderful thing for the hundred because we've had so little live sport, and suddenly there's this. By summer, touch wood, we're vaccinated, we're back to normal, mm. and you've got this big live tournament, new, exciting. Get the kids in, tickets are cheap, and I, I, I really hope and feel it may pick up some real momentum and be a really successful tournament and a, almost a symbol of a, a summer, there's like the, the summer after, the summer of freedom, the party summer after what has been a, such, what would have been such a difficult 18 months. That's kind of, maybe I'm getting carried away and overly excited, but that's really how I'm hoping. I think you're right. And I think, you know, everyone with a stake in it, which will certainly be hoping the same, but I think, you know, they were right. They were right not to try and have it this year in a, in a bio bubble, you know, it may or may not have been possible to, to run it alongside the test series. Probably not really given the travel involved, but yeah, the chance to launch it for the first time next summer, hopefully with fans and, yeah, and capture that kind of newfound freedom that, as you say, hopefully we'll, we'll all have. And, yeah, it could be an incredible summer, couldn't it, next year with the Olympics and the uh, the Euros and, 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 yeah, the 100 India coming over to play England. Yeah, it could be a great cricketing summer. I've just moved down the road from the Oval, actually, about a 10-minute walk. So I've got everything crossed that we can have some cricket this summer because... A big part of the location appeal is being so near the cricket. Um, but yeah, I've got the same opinion. The 100, I just want to chuck myself into it. Having had a whole summer without cricket, I'm excited for anything. So Yeah, I, I've also seen it turn. Um, I've had friends who are very sceptical, as you said, about the 100 ball versus 2020 kind of format debate and why they're doing it. And the, the kits with all the crisp packets and the sponsors and... Uh, but actually, because of the delay and lack of cricket, everyone I know is is itching to to, to get along to to some of it and to really get involved with it. So, yeah, as we said, hopefully it will be a it will be a great success. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Sam. It's been absolutely lovely chatting to you. Um, oh, it's an absolute pleasure, gents. I've enjoyed every minute. Well. I, for one, Rob, don't know about you, but it's great to hear how the sausage, that is the BBC live text cricket commentary, the, you know, the saving grace for many, a dull occasion where you can check your phone in your pocket and see what the score is. Oh, England 33 again. 
see how that sausage is made by talking to the guy who did it, Sam Sheringham. And um, I really enjoyed it. I was a bit worried where you were going to go when you started saying sausage and then didn't really say anything to finish the metaphor for about 10 seconds. Um, but, but please, it landed where it did. That was great. It t- the time flew by. I couldn't believe it was 6pm. We started at, what, five-ish? I, suddenly it was six. Gone in the blink of an eye. Which um, I think was testament to him. He was lovely to talk to. And what we were talking about, I think... Uh, I mean, it, interesting career. I, I wasn't quite expecting the stuff about Bloomberg and the fact they couldn't use any adjectives or descriptive words. How frustrating that must be for a journalist. You know, I, you know that was something I wasn't really expecting to talk to him about. But I, I found that really interesting and... Yeah, then why his thoughts on cricket stumped the podcast. I actually gave the, the episode about the Filipino women in Hong Kong, their, their kind of cricket story, a listen off, off the back of speaking to him. And it's, it's, I do recommend anyone listening to this to give that a listen. Really, really interesting story. And it's, it's just, yeah, it was lovely to catch up with him, chat to him, hear his thoughts on, on the game, how he came to love the game himself and, and where he sees things going forward with, with, with 100 others. So... It was, it was another thoroughly enjoyable 45, 50 minutes speaking to you and someone I've never met before about cricket and, and what a wonderful sport it is. It's been good fun, this podcasting lark season two, hasn't it? Long may it continue. Long, long may it continue into 2021. So have a, a ha- very happy new year. Uh, and here's to a vaccine and here's to a new year full of cricket with crowds present and hopefully things back to normality. Yeah, see you at the Oval. All those. <laughs> <laughs>